0: If you would, take your copy of God's Word this morning and open to Hebrews chapter 1 as we get back into this wonderful book together. As created beings, we are, of course, finite and temporal. We live brief lives in which our schedules are often driven by our weaknesses. We have to have air, for example, adequate clothing, food, water, shelter. And so much of our day is driven by the urgency of these necessities. We work to earn money, to buy the things we need, and throughout the day we have to stop and make sure that we are attending to our body's need for survival. In addition to that, are the daily, we're daily surrounded by news and entertainment and world events that are temporal and fleeting. These things, of course, are not bad in and of themselves. They're simply part of the earthly lives that God has given us to live, but they can become a, a detriment to our spiritual lives. If we're not careful, we can allow the temporal things that define the rhythms of our daily lives to drown out and quench our appetite for eternal things. And this creates a a particular problem when it comes to Sunday morning, like today. Think about this. Every Sunday morning, our task is to open a book that contains the very words of the eternal God, who is our creator and redeemer. And we are to dwell deeply and reverently not only on the words of this book but on the God revealed on its pages. The one true God who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. The sovereign one who controls every atom of the universe and sustains it by the word of his power. The one who is holy and perfect in both character and nature. Who is immutable, omnipotent, omniscient, transcendent and yet imminent. To dwell intently on such a being is, is difficult and taxing for our finite temporal brains and, and to fully understand such a being is absolutely impossible. And yet at the same time there is no being more worthy or beneficial for us to think on this morning. And this is especially true as we come to our text in Hebrews chapter 1. Today, because the author of Hebrews is going to challenge us to think deeply about God. Specifically, about the one supreme, unique Son of God. And this will not be light, it will not be fluffy, it will not be temporal and fleeting. In fact, at times, as we contemplate this passage, our brains will sweat. But it will be also an immense privilege. Because there is no more beneficial or fertile pasture for our minds to graze than upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the joy this morning of basking in His glory as it's revealed on the pages of Scripture. And I pray that as we look to the Word and look to Christ today, that we will marvel at the Son and appreciate the Son. And that that will lead to greater degrees of worship of the Son. With that in mind, it's my joy to turn our attention again to the book of Hebrews. And let me remind you that the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And in the first four verses that we studied together, we, we saw that Jesus is superior to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. Let's read together the first four verses of Hebrews 1 for context sake. The author writes, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets... In many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, in these first four verses, as I said, we see the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament prophets, even including Moses himself. And then in verse 4, he introduces what what will become the new theme that he picks up on in verse 5, which is that Jesus is also superior to the angels. That introduces this next section that we'll be studying together for the next several weeks, beginning in verse 5. It actually runs all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. But the first section here is verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1. We'll we'll be together this morning. Let's let's read our text, chapter 1, verse 5. We'll read all the way through verse 14. He says, "For For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Today I've begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up, Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so as we open this first section dealing with Christ's superiority over the angels we really are introduced to one simple theme. Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angels. Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angels. But it does bring up a question that we touched on the last time we were in Hebrews, and that is, why is it important to prove that Jesus is superior to angels? After all, that's probably not a question that we really have in our minds. I hope it's not. We, we, we don't get confused on that point. So why is it that the author is going to spin from verse 5 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2 uh, fleshing out this concept of the superiority of Christ over angels? Now I went over this briefly our last time together but I realize we've had a few weeks off we've had Christmas in which a lot of food has been consumed and other things and I, I guarantee you, you probably don't remember what I said and so I'm just going to remind us why is this important why does the author in context find it necessary to prove this point well first of all remember that the Jews understood that the law was given by God to Moses through the mediation of angels we see this in a couple of places. Galatians chapter three, 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Uh, Stephen, in his sermon before he is martyred in Acts 7, says the same thing, beginning in verse 52. He says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So then, the law of Moses was given through the, the mediation of angels, and therefore they had a high view of angels. And in that sense, rightly so. But secondly, remember that, that angels, every time they appear in human history to, to speak on God's behalf, they are always these glorious beings that, that provoke awe and wonder. We even see that in, in Daniel chapter 8. Remember, Daniel was a very righteous man. And yet when he encounters the angel Gabriel, look specifically at verse 17. It says, "...so he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face." You see, that, that's, that's the typical response when a human being encounters an angel. They're these glorious beings that, that represent God. They speak on God's behalf. And so that was the second reason that people thought so highly of angels. But finally, angels sort of have this mystery about them because we really don't know much about angels. There's not a lot in Scripture mentioning Uh, who they are and exactly what they do. We know some things, but we don't know as much as we might like to know. Because of that mystery, that sort of air of mystery, some people elevated angels in in the day of the original audience to the point of idolatrous worship. Remember, we saw that in Colossians chapter 2. He said, "...let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels." Uh, He he goes on to explain other things there. But obviously, some had given into this faulty worship. So let's put the whole puzzle together. When you understand that the law was given through the mediation of angels, and they are are always these these amazing beings that represent God, that that demand respect, and there's sort of this mysterious fascination that results in idolatrous worship on behalf of some, now you see... Why, the author saw it as very important for everyone to understand that Jesus himself is exalted above and superior to every angel. And so it is that the author sets out to prove this. Now, as I said before, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he introduces this idea. He says there in verse 4, "...having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name." Than they, What is this mysterious name that Jesus has inherited that's more excellent than the angels? It is the name Son. It's the name Son. And we've already seen this in verse 2 of chapter 1. In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. And in verse 5, the very first argument he's going to make is that Jesus alone is entitled to this special name of Son. That's what we'll look at together. In verses 5 through 14, the author is going to make uh, several arguments. In fact, he quotes seven texts, seven Old Testament texts, that reveal six proofs of Jesus' superiority to angels. Seven texts that reveal six proofs of Jesus' superiority to angels. We're just going to look at the first two proofs in the first three texts today. Now, the first proof that Jesus is superior to the angels, according to the author of Hebrews, is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Look back at your your Bible. Verse 5 begins with the word for. That clearly clues us in that he's about to prove what he just said in verse 4, which is that Jesus is superior to the angels. And what we're going to see here is that the author of Hebrews is an expert ...in the Old Testament Scriptures. He has a great, deep understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures... ...that's going to challenge and stretch us regularly throughout the Old Testament... ...because often we're more familiar with the New Testament than the Old. So this is going to be good for us as it expands our knowledge of the Old Testament. And what we're going to see is that when he goes to argue his point... ...he doesn't use his own clever illustrations... ...he doesn't use his own clever arguments... Instead, he points to specific texts in the Bible and says, Here's my proof that Jesus is superior to the angels. The first essential element of the superiority of Christ is his exalted name of Son. And so in order to prove this, he's going to give us two related Old Testament texts that prove that the Messiah, or Jesus, is the one who bears the name Son. But he begins in verse five with a rhetorical question. He says, "For to which of the angels did he ever say? That is, God the Father. To which of the angels did God the Father ever say?" And then he's going to give two different statements. Of course, the, the expectation here is a negative answer. He expects that we would answer, no, that the Father's not said these things about angels. And understand that his point here, in this whole section, is not really to make points about angels, but about Christ. He wants us to better understand our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, he's, he's putting them up against angels to show us just how magnificent Jesus really is. You'll notice uh, in your English Bible, most likely, depending on the translation... They do a really good job here of helping us see when he's quoting directly from the Old Testament. There's several passages. If you look at the rest of chapter 1, uh, there's, most of it is just straight quotes from the Old Testament. Here in verse 5, you'll notice there are two direct quotes from the Old Testament to prove this first point. The first quote comes ex- actually from the psalm that we read this morning to open the service. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. There he says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, understand, in in context, the point is very, very clear. Every Jewish person listening to this letter being read would have known instinctively that these words, this quote, was not said about angels. In fact, this quote would have been so familiar that the original audience would have probably known exactly where it came from. Now, it might not be as familiar to us, and so we're going to go back to Psalm 2 just for a few moments to make sure we understand the significance of what the author of Hebrews is saying. In Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 2 breaks down into a few different sections. Verses 1 to 3 is the first section, and this is what it says. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, in these introductory words to the psalm, we're introduced to two characters That all the kings of the earth are rebelling against. They're kicking against the authority of two characters in particular. The Lord, which literally is the name Yahweh. And secondly, his anointed. They're rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. Now the word anointed in Hebrew is where we get the name Messiah. Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed. And so when he says anointed, you'll notice it's probably uh, capitalized in your Bible in Psalm 2. That's because the Jews and Christians have understood that to be a reference to the Messiah directly. Now, in verses uh, 4 through 6, he continues and says this. Here's God's response to their rebellion. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, or Yahweh, scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now these words are spoken by God, and God is saying, Here's my response to the rebellion of these kings. I'm going to put my king, and he's going to rule over all the kings on my holy hill in Zion. The king, in context, refers to the anointed one. Yahweh is going to place the anointed one as the king of kings. And in verse 7, now we come to the quote directly. In verse 7, the the anointed one speaks. These are words spoken by the Messiah, the anointed one. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He says, let me tell you what, what Yahweh said to me. He said to me, you are my son. Today... I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So who is it that these words are spoken to? Not the angels. The anointed one says, He, God the Father, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now we're up to speed with what the original audience would have understood. They would have known the context of Psalm 2. They would have known. This is one of the most famous messianic psalms in all of the scripture. They would have been very familiar with this quote. And it was made not of angels, but of the Messiah Christ, who is the Lord Jesus. He is the Son. In fact, the Greek here is very emphatic in this little bitty uh, quote, you are my Son. First of all, in the Greek, it begins with the word Son. It says, Son... You are. And next, the word you is very emphatic. Greek is like Spanish and other inflective languages where you don't have to add the pronoun because the pronoun's included in the verb. Just by the verb, you know who the verb is referring to. But when you add the pronoun, in addition to the verb, it gives emphasis. In English, we, we do it this way. We do it with our, our tone. And this is, this is the way it really is read. You are my son specifically you as apart from any other you anointed one Messiah you are my son now we come to the second part of that quote and there's some debate here that we have to understand what does he mean when he says today I have begotten you today I have begotten you now we have to be very very careful This is where our brains have to work, where we have to sweat to make sure that we get this right, because there are some some pretty significant implications. If you go the wrong direction on some of these words, you can end up in, in legitimately heretical areas of belief. So we need to specifically understand the meaning of the word today and the word begotten. Let's work with today first. When he says today in Psalm 2, what day is he referring to? What time period or what day specifically? Now, before I explain that, I have to explain one other concept. And that is the sonship of Jesus. The relationship of God the Father and God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This is very important to understand. Jesus has always been God's Son. He is the eternal Son of God. You see, there are a lot of commentators, as you read about this... uh, that want that to try to find a point in Jesus' ministry and say, okay, there he became the Son of God. The only problem with that is he's called the Son of God throughout. In fact, we see in, in his birth announcement to Mary before he's even born that he'll be called the Son of God in Luke 1. At his baptism, you remember, God the Father speaks, this is my Son in Matthew 3. At his transfiguration, God speaks again, Matthew 17, this is my Son. And so we have to understand that all of these statements in the scripture, when God the Father says, this is my son, or he will be called the son of God, it is confirmation of his sonship. It is not conferring sonship upon him. So Jesus is not the son of God, because at his baptism, God said, this is my son. The reason God said, this is my son, is because he already was God's son, and he's announcing that this is God's son. So it's important to understand the word today and the word begotten, cannot mean that there was a time in which the Son of God was not the Son of God, and then at a certain point of time, He became the Son of God. And Instead, it must uh, describe their ongoing eternal relationship. God, remember, is immutable. That means He cannot change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God has always existed in, as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is a description of of their eternal relationship as father and son. But with that in mind, we do have a clue as to what in the world the, the, the word today refers to here in Psalm 2 because of a quote from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 13 in the middle of one of his messages. He says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children. What promise? We're going to see. It's from Psalm 2. God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He raised up Jesus. This is the reference to the resurrection. As it is also written in the second psalm You are my son. Today I have begotten you. In this sermon, Paul connects the resurrection of Jesus to the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Now again, his point is not to insinuate, I want to be really clear, it's not to insinuate that it was the resurrection that conferred sonship upon Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that in the resurrection, we have the chief and final proof that Jesus is unmistakably the one that these words speak to. It was on that day that God sealed the deal. The resurrection of Jesus leaves no doubt. This is the anointed one of Psalm 2. Today, it becomes very clear through the resurrection, followed by his exaltation at the right hand of the Father, that this is the anointed one whom God would set up as the king of kings. And his reign will be forever. His reign will be physically brought to earth in his second coming, but even now he's at the right hand of the Father awaiting that day. And so it is in that sense that the word today in Psalm 2 refers to the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. That leaves us with the word begotten. Many people have been tripped up over this word begotten. Because the reason is we can, we can understand why when, when we use the word begotten, of course you may not ever use that word, but, but it, when a person uses that word appropriately of a, of a human couple, We're saying that a father has fathered a child. A a mother bears a child, a father begets a child. And so there is some physical lineage here that we're talking about when we use the word begotten. But obviously that cannot be the meaning of the word when applied to Jesus. Jesus as the Son of God is routinely described as equal with God and one who shares the same divine essence and nature as the Father and the Spirit. Remember, this is the exact argument that the author of Hebrews has already made in verse 3 when he said, And he is, Jesus is, the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Obviously, the author of Hebrews wouldn't have used an argument here in verse 5 that would undercut another argument he made two verses before. So, in his mind, the word begotten does not mean that there was a point in time in which Jesus came into existence as some false teachers have taken this word. There's another scripture in which this word begotten is used that really helps us in our understanding, and it's one you probably have memorized. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Clearly there, and really everywhere the term is used, only begotten Son refers to the uniqueness, the fact that Jesus is the one-of-a-kind Son of God. There is none like Him. In this case, the term is not meant to convey His origin. Instead, His unique relationship to the Father. You Think about it. The Scripture says that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. Only Jesus is described as the only begotten Son of God. That is because there is a unique relationship that he and the father share. We also understand that the Jews knew that this title as son of God was a reference, a claim to deity. We know that because of how they responded when Jesus used it. For example, in John 5:18, listen to this. It says, "For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him." Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. You see, they understood. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the Son of God. Of course, he made it really clear in John 10.30. He says, I and the Father are one. Clearly, then, the word begotten is used to describe this eternal, unique, special relationship between the Father and Son, and in no way insinuates that Jesus is a created being that came into existence at a certain point in time. That actually is a heresy that's been condemned since the earliest days of the church. There was a a heretic named Arius, you may have heard of him, who argued along these lines that Jesus was created by the Father, and a man named Athanasius uh, argued against him successfully, and there was a church council of Nicaea in which they officially denounce this view of Arius. And here's the statement they wrote, wrote about Jesus that came out of that, that statement, the Nicene Creed. It says, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, they mean eternally by that phrase, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. clearly the, the church has understood the scriptures correctly here from the earliest days this phrase begotten simply refers to the special unique eternal relationship that's existed between the father and the son now let me reiterate the point of all this what, why, why, why are we going through so much detail on this issue to bring it back to the point of Hebrews It's because these wonderful words of Psalm 2, while never being spoken of an angel, were spoken of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is the only one worthy of this title, Son, the only begotten Son. Now, some of you who are are Bible students may be thinking of a couple of passages I want to just quickly refer to one issue here. There, there are some, a few places in Scripture where angels collectively, as a group, are called sons of God. One of those would be Job 1.6. Um, but, but understand, they, that's always of a group, never of an individual angel. No individual angel is ever given the special title of a son, the Son of God. It's reserved only for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in continuing on in this passage, we understand now that this quote from Psalm 2-7 identifies Jesus as the one who heard this decree from the Father, You are my Son, and in the resurrection it was verified that this was Him, today I have begotten you. He is then obviously superior to the angels. And Christian, the significance of this is that this is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus we know and love. This is the Jesus who has redeemed us so that we can be with him forever. And one day, if you're a Christian, we will see him face to face. We will see this exalted Jesus. And so as, as we dig deep into these words in this text, what it should be doing is as we dive further down, it should cause your eyes to look up further and further to the exaltation of Christ and understanding the significance of the fact that we are his people. We are the most privileged people on the planet to know this Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever let your thoughts of Jesus become routine or stale or cold. He is the perfect eternal Son of God and we... Christian are his people what a joy now with that argument made the author turns to a second Old Testament passage that makes the same point that's related to the first passage and this one comes from the Davidic covenant the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 look back at Hebrews he says and again verse 5 and again I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The words, and again, just tell us there's a second example coming here of how Jesus is exalted above the angels because of this name, Son. The example comes from a very specific scene in which Nathan the prophet, you remember he interacts with David, and God gives this special covenant to David through Nathan. We're going to read the text in just a moment, but I want to give you the context quickly. Remember at the beginning of 2 Samuel 8, David expresses a good desire to build a temple for God. He wants to build a temple. And initially, Nathan the prophet says, that's a good idea, go ahead. But God reveals to Nathan that it's not his will for David to build the temple. Instead, he sends Nathan to give David a very special message that now becomes the Davidic covenant, a covenant He made with David. I want to read in second Samuel verse chapter seven, beginning in verse eight. Now, therefore, this is God speaking to Nathan, "Thus you shall say to my servant David, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone." And have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the ones of the great men who were on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. And the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now I read that whole section because it's important for us to understand. This little phrase here in Hebrews where he says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Now to understand this, uh, hopefully you were with us in our Christmas series because there I explained this concept of Old Testament prophecies having what we call a near and far fulfillment. That is, in the same prophecy, in, in the really kind of in the same sentence, there can be aspects of a prophecy that were going to be fulfilled almost right away, immediately, in the near future, while still having elements that were meant for the far future. That's what we have here in the Davidic covenant. Sometimes in the same verse, there are aspects that are near, and there are aspects that are far. I want to look specifically at verses 12 and 13 that we just read, where our quote comes from, And here we're going to see just that, some things that happened in the days of Solomon and then some days that were meant to refer to the Messiah. Verse 12, speaking to David, When your days are complete and when you lie down with your fathers, that's when you die, I will raise up your descendant. Now that word descendant actually can be translated as seed. When your seed after you, or who I will raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, first of all, notice that some of these details actually came true almost immediately in the coming years as Solomon took over for David. He says that this descendant's going to build a house for his name. That's exactly what Solomon did. Solomon became king. He builds a temple. But also, we see this word at the end of verse 13, forever. Well, Solomon... He's not on the throne anymore. Solomon died, as did many, many kings after him. And so clearly, that that particular aspect of the promise can't be referring to Solomon or even the kings who would come after him because, unfortunately, the, the succession of kings that came after Solomon ultimately disobeyed God and were thrown out of the land. And so there's this long gap where nobody was on the throne of David. So what's going on here? Well, it's right after this Word forever, that he says the words, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. The author of Hebrews plucks that statement out and puts it here as an argument for his case that Jesus, the Messiah, is the one true Son of God and therefore exalted above the angels. He does that because the Jews came to understand pretty quickly that there were aspects of the Davidic covenant that were not fulfilled in Solomon's day and that really couldn't be fulfilled by Solomon. In one sense, Solomon was the son of God, little s, in the sense that he goes on and even talks about how he will correct him when he sins. Those things are all referring to Solomon, not to Jesus, obviously. Um, But Jesus is the unique son of God, and we know that the Jews were to be waiting for another son, not just because it wasn't fulfilled in Solomon, but because God would tell them later, You're supposed to be waiting for another one from the line of David. We saw this in Isaiah 11 when we read this for our Christmas series. Remember Isaiah 11, verse 1. The context here is Isaiah has just explained that that destruction and judgment is going to come upon the people of Israel. And then he flips to the positive in verse 1 of chapter 11 and says, Then, after that, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What Isaiah is saying is that it's going to look like all hope is lost, that that judgment has come and destruction has come, like a giant tree that's been cut down and all that's left there is the stump. But he says, from that stump, a little shoot is going to arise. Shoot from the line of Jesse, that is David's father, from the line of David, and he will be the king. So the people understood. That there were aspects of this, this covenant, this one from the line of David that went on into the future. They would have known these messianic promises. That's what I want to get across. That's why there's no context given to these verses in Hebrews. Because the people would have known Psalm 2 in the first reference. They would have known, this is from the Davidic covenant in the second reference. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And they would have also known the significance. Because here's the significance. The author of Hebrews is saying... That while these were not spoken of angels, they were spoken of the Messiah who is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the long-awaited son from the line of David who would be the king of kings. And so now we see just how superior he is. And because he is superior to the angels and really every other being, he's also worthy of worship. And that is the second proof. The second proof that Jesus is superior to the angels, the author of Hebrews says, is that Jesus is deserving of worship. Look back at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. He introduces this third argument, this third text, uh, with the word again. He uses that again. And when he again. It's just a a third argument. But he also adds this, this description of Jesus that's interesting. He says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world. The firstborn. Now, this word firstborn is another very significant word that unfortunately some false teachers have seized upon and have used for their own heretical devices. But thankfully, we've already studied this word if you were with us back in Colossians chapter 1. I know that was a long time ago and some of the kids weren't even born then. But we studied this very important word in Colossians chapter 1. He actually uses it a couple of times in a short span. Let me remind you of how he uses it there because it helps inform how it's used here. Paul says... Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. Now, as we continue reading, these things help help underscore what the meaning of this word firstborn is. So we keep reading in verse 16. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, listen to this, have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. Here's our word again. The firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Paul uses the same word again in Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, I quote all of those to help us understand that every time this word is used, it always refers to the preeminence of Christ. It's an important word the preeminence of Christ. That is, that Jesus is exalted above all others, he is in first place of importance, of authority and of significance in no way does the word firstborn indicate that Jesus is a created being in fact when the word firstborn is applied to Jesus it doesn't even mean that he's first in the sense of sequential order we know that because paul said he's the firstborn from the dead but some other people have been raised from the dead before jesus was in fact jesus rose them raised them from the dead so, when he says he's the firstborn from the dead, he means he's the preeminent one from the dead in the sense that in his resurrection, he overcame sin and death. He received a glorified body fit for eternity and ascended to the right hand of the Father, having purchased the redemption of his people. Jesus, then, as the preeminent one above all others, is worthy of worship. That's what the author is saying. He, when the firstborn, when the preeminent one, comes into the world, God the Father says, He says, and let all the angels of God worship Him. Now, there's some debate as to what Old Testament passage is being quoted here. It's really quick, uh, clear on the first two passages, but here there's some debate. It, it's one of two passages. It's either Psalm ninety-seven seven or Deuteronomy 32-43. The only problem is, if you turn to your Bible, your English Bible, it's, it's not going to line up, because the author here is quoting from a translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. We've talked about the Septuagint before. But the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. This was the common Bible that Jesus would have used, that the apostles would have used, obviously that the author of Hebrews is using here. And so... Just like as you look at different translations, different English translations, they may choose slightly different phrases or words, the same thing happens from the Hebrew Bible to the Septuagint, the Greek version. Let me read to you Psalm 97.7 from our English Bible, and then I'll read it to you from the Greek uh, Septuagint. So here's Psalm 97.7 as it probably reads in your Bible. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols... Worship him, all you gods, little g. Remember, sometimes, on occasion, angels as a a host, as a group, are referred to as gods or sons of gods. Always with a little g. Not indicating that they're divine. It is that they, they come from, they are created beings who are exalted holy beings, sometimes referred to in this way. But because the Jews clearly understood that this was a reference to angels, in the Septuagint they make that clear. Here's the Septuagint's translation of the same verse. Let all that worship graven images be ashamed, who boast of their idols. Worship him, all ye his angels. See, they, They put that there interpretively to help the reader understand what is meant when it says all ye gods. All that to say, the author of Hebrews seizes upon that verse to help us understand something very crucial. Jesus, as the preeminent one, is undoubtedly above the angels because God himself says, angels, worship him. Worship him. And we know from the rest of Scripture that God does not share his glory or his worship with anyone. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord. That is my name. Literally, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So the fact, listen to me, the fact that the Father says to the angels, worship him, what does that mean? He's not only preeminent over the angels, he himself is he is God. In fact, the angels know this, and they themselves, the holy angels, will not receive worship. Because they know that it is reserved for God alone. We see this in Revelation 22. When John is confronted with a holy angel, verses 8 and 9 I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel who showed them me these things. This angel was so majestic, even though John, he, he knows better. He's so overcome by the, the, the glory of this angel. He falls down begins to worship the angel. What does the angel do? Verse 9. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Even the angels understand. Clearly then, if God calls the angels to worship Jesus, that means that He is not only superior to them, but He is Himself God. And so now we see the point. The point of these verses, of these quotes from Scripture, these arguments, is really not about angels at all. It's about Christ. It's written to help us understand just how magnificent our Jesus is. God's only begotten Son, the preeminent one, who is worthy of worship. And these truths must affect us. These deep realities of the Son should deeply impact us. I'm just going to mention two specific ways. One is that we should hope in the son. Hope in the son. If Jesus is who the author of Hebrews describes, then he is our living hope of salvation and reconciliation to God. Remember what Paul said about Jesus as the firstborn to the Romans. He says, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren." And then he goes on to say this, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And he comes to this conclusion, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The word justified means a legal declaration of righteous. By the way, if, if you're wondering how can I get to heaven, there's the answer. You have to be perfectly righteous. Hopefully it's sinking in, but that means it's impossible. It's impossible. What you need is to be justified you need to be declared legally by god to be perfectly righteous how can that happen when we are sinners who have rebelled against a holy god it's because of this jesus that's described for us here in hebrews he is the long-awaited messiah the promised king of kings from the the line of david the very son of god who became man and lived in our place He lived that perfect life that we should have lived and could not live, that we failed to live miserably. And then He gave His life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would come to faith and repentance in Him. And then He rose again from the grave, verifying who He was and the acceptance of the Father of His sacrifice on the cross. That means... That if you, as a sinner who's rebelled against God, will confess your sin, recognize yourself as a sinner, and recognize Jesus as your only hope of salvation, that it's His righteousness that you need to be accepted by God. If you'll put your faith in Jesus, repenting of your sins, you will be justified, legally declared righteous, because of what this one, this Son of God, has done. That is the good news of the gospel. He is our eternal hope of salvation. But here's the thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, He's not only the hope of the unbeliever for salvation, He's the sure hope of the believer for future glorification. In verse 30, There in that same passage in in Romans, it says, And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. If you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you not only have a sure hope in the Son of God for salvation, but you have a sure hope that He will finish the work that He began in you, both in the process of sanctification in this life and finally in glorification, that He will bring you safely home. We have that confidence because our Jesus is this Jesus, the only begotten one of God. He will bring us safely home. Christian, when the noise of this temporal world full of lesser things seeks to drown out your appetite for eternal things, turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Jesus and the things of this earth, as the song says, will grow strangely dim. the temporal events of this life are weighty, when they are oppressive, when they are dark, when the trials of life seem to, to hit you like wave after wave in the ocean, turn your eyes to the only begotten Son of God. There is our hope. But secondly, not only is He our hope, but as the author of Hebrews has reminded us, He deserves our worship. Finally, worship the Son. Hope in the Son, worship the Son. Think of this, if the angels, who are majestic beings, understand this, angels dwell in the presence of God, and they are perfectly holy, those who have not rebelled. Obviously, there's Satan and those who followed him. We're talking about holy angels. They are there in sinless perfection, and yet God says to them, worship him. If that's true of these majestic beings, how much more is it true of us worship him you see to worship Jesus means that we must first understand that he is superior not just over the angels but over us do not sinfully withhold the worship that is due his holy name but willingly offer to him not only your voice but even your very life as an act of worship because the son is worthy Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may it never get old to look again and again at who you are in the Scriptures. We thank you, Jesus, that while in this life we cannot physically see your face, we see you on the pages of Scripture we can know you we can have real relationship with you and there is real salvation in you jesus forgive us for our thoughts that are often unworthy of you they're far too low we take pleasure far too often in things that are much lesser and temporal and fleeting when you are the best. Lord Jesus, help us to be reminded as we stretch our brains to the breaking point in trying to fathom who you are. Oh, help us to remember that while we cannot climb to you, you have come to us. That we might have real relationship with you forever. Not because we're worthy of it, but because in your grace, you've purchased it with your own blood. May this only wet our appetite for more and more of you. We ask it in Christ's name.